This podcast is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and for contact information on publicist Steve Joyner. listening to In a City Like Yours, a semi-monthly podcast featuring interesting people with interesting life stories. This podcast may contain language and or subject matter not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'm your host, Michael Glenn Moore. If you have an interesting life story and would like to appear on the show, please drop me a note at inacitylikeyours at gmail.com. Also, join our Facebook page at In a City Like Yours Podcast to receive notices of new releases and other info. Now, please welcome today's guest. Uh, hi, my name is Keith, Keith Mason. I live in a suburb of Philadelphia across the river in New Jersey, where I've been most of my life. Uh, grew up in a town about 15 minutes from here where my mother still resides, where I was raised by her as an only child. And now I'm in my 60s, which is a polite way of saying in a couple of months, I'll be getting into my 70s. And when you get to this point, there's an awful lot of stuff in back of you, but one can be amazed sometimes as I would found myself being amazed at how much can be in front of you. And when I hit 64, which is a couple of years back, actually, I spent a lot of time thinking about a half a century ago when I was 14. Uh, because back when I was 14, I did not exist. At least according to my father, that's how it was. And yet I'm 14 and and there I am sitting on my mother's bed and my legs are dangling. I've got these summer sneakers on and she's organizing some boxes on the far stretched out end of the closet with the winter coats and the plastic bags. Uh, we just moved at the uh, beginning of the summer, just before my 14th birthday to this uh, garden apartment building with no gardens, just this big white boxy brick place uh, erected on some land that it previously had been a dairy and this is a 10 minute walk across the town from where I was raised in my grandparents house and I'm sitting on the bed and, and she brings out this manila office envelope a standard 9 by 12 and she says uh, this has something about your father okay that was pretty sudden it certainly came out of a complete nowhere it was a subject that had barely been breached across the years and I've got a little excitement in me I'm kind of bubbling oh, oh really but allowed to her I simply acquiesced I'm like, okay I'll take a look I, I didn't know much uh, the simple story was that my mom had swept up you know, real young she got married quickly created a baby by the time I got there the father was off the radar he was never spoken about never referred to uh, I was used to it 
you don't miss someone, you don't miss something that never was. And now my mother is letting me in, deciding that I'm ready to hear something, deal with something. Mom always assured her willingness to answer any questions I had about my father, but neither of us ever brought it up. I never demanded any answers. I never wanted to force her to confront the past, put her through whatever she'd have to feel, to remember, to relive, in order to relate the whole where I came from story. So I had this envelope and she left the room. There was uh, something carnivorous in me that just wanted to rip open the envelope, but my nature is to be kind of reserved. I don't tear open presents and mishmash through all the wrapping. I'm methodical. I stay a little humble about it. So I've got this envelope and I very gently bent back the clasp and took out the contents. And there are two copies of a single edition of a Newsweek magazine from six years before, back in October of 1961. They're still reasonably fresh. They're not yet yellowed around the edges. And then behind them were some black tinged sheets off of an office duplicating machine, which is what you used to call them. And these were pages from a previous edition of the magazine. Apparently this doctor that my mother, the nurse had worked for, had a subscription for the waiting room and he drew her attention to these items in the magazine, figuring they'd be meaningful to her. Otherwise they would have just disappeared into some incinerator. So in the intact magazine, there's a paper clip that marks a story that runs across two pages, it runs about 900 words. And it's sitting in between an article on the mysterious death of a Danish diplomat with suspected Soviet, meaning Russian involvement, and a profile of the brainy Senator William Fulbright, who was very big back in the 60s. That's where the Fulbright scholarships come from. And the article is headlined Salvage, the Golden Fleece. And there's this vertical page long ink illustration that reminds you of the covers of those old gutsy men magazines. And this report was revisiting a longer, similar story that was on that earlier photocopy. And it's all about the underwater adventures of a heating engineer in his 30s. There are these two tales about hauling up from the seabed that which some would value and others would prefer to leave undisturbed. And secured by the paperclip is a photograph and passport size. And the man appeared kind of grim in this lukewarm portrait light. It was hard to discern if he was in his early 20s, younger, or older, a, a Northern European sort, might have been Balkan. Uh, the suit jacket was plain, the wavy hair is brushed off a, off a square brow, had a, a hint of a, <laughs> of a German POW camp guard, maybe one of John Dillinger's boys, as though there should have been a matching profile shot with these sheriff's numbers under it. So I'm squinting to increase both the optical contrast and my interpretive perception, but I felt no hopeful rushing urge to resemble the photo, to establish some connection to the face. There was no, oh boy, finally. I remember my salutation to this photograph is kind of quiet and it might've been a little, a little edge to it. Like it's talking to the pizza delivery guy who just showed up two hours late. And it was mostly, so, it's you. 
and I got into a, a staring contest with the picture. The man directed his left eye right at me, but the right seemed a little off-center, so the overall effect was of a subject looking at the photographer's collar, maybe, and back to the lens, kind of drifting around. Uh, a man who wouldn't be caught looking directly or intently at you. Now, as far as what was expected in this moment, what was required of me, uh, was I supposed to feel attached to this person, uh, kind of pro forma, uh, this source of my brown wavy hair and the small mouth and the wide ears, an attachment to this guy who talked my mother into who knows what, pixie dusted her, told her she was the one, this would work, and it didn't. A man who, when given the opportunity to commit, to confess, to embrace, to step up, sure, he's my boy, he chose not to and disappeared. Now, is this a face that my mother saw upon my own? Did I present this guy and the memory to her, maybe against her will every day? Or was it just when I was standing in a certain place with an angle and a light that her missing husband came back to her, reminded her a faint glimmer from some ancient horizon of her life? Well, here's this office envelope that came out of the box in the closet, and it's got the only physical artifacts about my father I had ever seen, the only available facts to record the only impressions I could imprint, any evidence of personality or appearance. It's all sliding out of a little envelope. There was no memorabilia. There was no memento mori anywhere. All of the ritually cataloged family photos and the albums and the 16 millimeter movies were all devoid of any image of a guy whose presence in my mother's life had been totally cleaned out one night years before. Uh, plenty of people learn these days, there's a lot going on these days. People are spitting into tubes and DNA testing and genealogical websites, and they're looking for their roots. And people are finding out a uh, there was a dismissed or a deceased ancestor they're, uh, just by riffling through some old drawer in an attic and finding some old crumpled wartime letters. Or they're with their grandma as she shares her grainy treasures on a rainy day. Hey, look, kids, this is your great-grandpa Antonio when he was a goat farmer in Palermo. But on this summer day, a father is revealed to his progeny in an old Newsweek magazine. A quoted man under a paperclip, a confident, striving explorer, a seeker of mysteries, an Aquaman. Now... The summer before this magazine article came out, the first one that came out, I remember I'd been bragging about how my mother took out my tonsils. Uh, she'd stabilized her medical career in Philadelphia by trading off some hospital shift work for a nursing position with this highly reputable ear, nose, and throat saddle um, specialist, the name of Saddleoff. He was the ENT to the stars. He took care of these um, uh, these roadshow Broadway singers coming through town with their throats all raw. He took care of Bobby Rydell just before he did an appearance on American Bandstand, back when this teen dance show was originating from a TV station in West Philly. So it was quite fortuitous when my mother was working for an expert when my adolescent tonsils became inflamed. 
Um, no doubt she got a break on the bill. And they draped me uh, in white on this table as the surgical team is kind of leaning over like fronds of a bush down to the pond, filling up my whole ceiling view. And then they would turn away to be busy and the lights would all flood back. I couldn't see my mother's entire face, just the bridge of her nose and the eyes peering out between the hair cap and the mask. But I could tell she was smiling in there to impart confidence when you're nine years old and you're having surgery for the first time, or I guess for that matter, any time, you just can't beat having your mom right there because nobody's going to muck it up when Mama Bird has a tray of knives. And that afternoon when it was over, I requested my unlimited ice cream, which is the post-tonsillectomy tradition, a bribery of children's cooperation that you can trace back to the Abyssinians. But the celebration was limited. My throat was so raw, I could only manage a few swallows of these spiky, gummy strawberry crystals. The hospital allowed my mother to stay in my room all night, a professional courtesy, I suppose. And she dozed fitfully in this lumpy, pre-ergonomic padded chair. And when the terrible, tearing soreness woke me, she'd rouse up in the dark and bring me ice chips. So it was this fun story, kind of poignant, one of my oldest, unique, because nobody's mother ever did surgery on him. And despite having no pictures of myself in a hospital gown, it was a true thing. It was documented, it was on file, it was remembered. And such picture stories in my mind would go back another few years before that, but with less clear recollection. The cranial library, the mind's eye that spools back, uh, it would barely approach my fourth year and then kind of go all crackle gray. The earlier stuff was replaced by newer, ostensibly more essential material. My brain repurposed many of its original memory units, uh, which is how the old TV networks would cheaply tape over the, the old programs over the top of the old golden age because the old shows would never really be missed, never really hold any utility. That's how it is with, uh, with growth, you know, tossing out the seemingly inconsequential to make room for the presumably critical, uh, a scheme of the brain's real estate development that denies every human so much wonderful recall. I was fairly certain I'd had an early childhood as biological growth demanded that I be small at one age and larger at another, uh, presumably later time. But the only way you could revisit those ears uh, without the memory was through the boxes of pictures, which is where the living room's chairs had floral colors glowing. The giant pink and brown fuzzy cloth horse, taller than me, was smiling. But even then, when you have all these clues, you don't really remember the scene. You just simply accept the photographic fact of it. Oh, so the uh, the wallpaper in the front room had stripes. Okay. Life uh, back when you were four, it's two-dimensional. It's flat. It's archived by a family of keepers and hoarders and chroniclers of these decades of some affirmed lineage. Photographs wrapped up in envelopes and taped into albums. Everybody looking at the future. The unmarried aunt who always came on our vacations. 
Sometimes there was some uncle, there were great grandparents who always dressed like it was 1910 and they would pass the year before I came along. There was a grandmother's brother who was estranged from the others after arguments about family grave sites. You live six blocks away, but I only see him at Christmas. There were discreetly attired people kicking surf down at the Jersey Shore. There was a childhood with my stick-thin family and these hefty in-laws and those birthday cakes from McMillan's Bakery with the plastic cowboys on top one year and the baseball players the next. All of it well worth protecting from fire or water or negligence by committing everything to a digital vault to use the technology of now to hang on to the then. And of course, my future generations would appreciate all that. And I guess I'll get to it one day. If I, if I still carried anything forward from the pre-memory, it existed only within intuition and dreams. It's a cache that no therapist can unlatch. Elements of childhood I cannot remember, but nevertheless inhabit me. Experiences long since taped over. You only know of that age what is saved for you. Sometimes the past is hidden until someone decides to pull it out of a closet and share it with you. Back in the Odyssey, Telemachus said something about how no one truly knows his own begetting. There are facts and there are mysteries. There's what you're told. There's what you discovered for yourself. Around the age of six, some kid asks, where's your dad? And in the older years, where's your dad? How come you never, what happened to children asking pointed questions in the way they do before they clue into that demarcation between curiosity and intrusion, usually from a shush from some mother. I don't recall anybody ever calling me a bastard, which is a fairly rude sobriquet. My mother never allowed me to regard myself as the enfant maudit, the accursed child of suspected lineage, like the, uh, the kids in the war born from the French girls and the Nazis. And there was no moment of big sit down. There was no unintended revelation overheard. I didn't have Betty Davis, this old neighbor spitting her venom across the fence. You know why you turn into such a brat? Because you don't got no father, that's why. So I would draw on the explanation my mother gave me. Some people don't have a mom and a dad, only one of them. There are different kinds of families and this is what you have. And a father-free life seemed not quite average, but it was satisfactorily normal. I had my grandfather throwing the ball around the yard and I'd make him an alternate Father's Day card in second grade, and there was no turmoil. Back in the 1950s, around three million children under 18 in the US had no father through death or some other form of complete cutoff or harsh abandonment. Paternal orphans, kids whose fathers disappeared in a mortar pit in the Ardennes or froze in the Hosan Reservoir, who dropped over with a snow shovel or walked away in North Philly, who got T-boned at that bad traffic circle in front of the diner in Brooklawn, or went down on the Edmund Fitzgerald. As information about my old man was less than sparse, well, there you go. I'm a paternal orphan. I qualify for membership in a sociological group. How about that? 
not that it gave me a government check. And a half century later, and I'm 64, and Paul McCartney's got his lyrics about being 64, and I'm sort of getting my own because, of course, everything has changed. And uh, you know, now you've got the World Wide Web, this new thing in my modern lifetime. Uh, we had you know, minivans and odor-free kitty litter, all sorts of wonderful inventions. And now we have this web that is infusing people's lives with information and data points. And everybody with a scanner and a collection of old stuff is copying their history and throwing it out onto the internet. And the then is becoming the now. And when you acquire binoculars, you're bound to peer through them and view things hitherto unseen. And I was in my late 50s when I began with the tinkering, the probing, the, the sly creaking open of a rusty door and prying up an uneven floorboard of my life. I'm older and yeah, get a little curious, but determined not to undertake any serious genetic trace, no genealogical study. This was a, a spare hour sifting through tall internet grass when I had 15 minutes here or there, these idle queries about a diver and this thing from Newsweek about U-boats and these searches compelled by some vague impetus all poked along by the expansiveness of the web. Hey, look what you can find these days. And my wife nosed around a few times as well because if I wasn't that interested in my old man, which I wasn't, she'd be happy to do it for me. So, so my father, Burton, he was mentioned out there a couple of times that we had those Newsweeks and then there were these 1960s New England newspapers reporting on this German submarine that he'd gone down to look at. And there was a, a sizable piece out there by this Midwestern TV newsman who was a wartime buff. And this was in a, a Naval Institute magazine. And one of those sessions, these idle 15, 20 minute spare time sessions fell on this night in early autumn. When I was 64, I'm in the basement office sitting down below the casement window that gives you a view of the tops of the spruces in the backyard. And I'm sitting at this Ikea glossy maple table desk framed by bookcases piled with copy paper and outmoded software disks and accumulated travel books and maps and binders for the public relations course that I taught at Temple University and my wife's old theater scripts. And I type in a variation of some typical keywords into a Yahoo search query box. And most of the results that then populate the first page are the things I'd seen before with Burton Honey for a Submarine and the Bridgeport Sunday Herald and the Chicago Tribune. And there were arrays of file folders of U-boats and exploding depth charges and ships with smoke and blackened faces of sailors picked out of the water and Americans cavorting on leave with energetic girlfriends. And all these results were on paper, uh, images of paper on JPEGs and PDFs. Because uh, what else from the old days would there be besides newspapers and magazines and the contents of filing cabinets? As I scroll down to the bottom of the list here on on the web page, there's something new. 
there's a, a header text with some of my search terms. But the thumbnail picture that is attached to it is this older white woman in glasses with her hair bunned back, like one of my grandmother's church buddies sitting in the parlor when I was a kid. A kind of incongruent pairing of words and image. So I'm scanning the screen and I sort of woke up to the moment. Uh, it's like what happens to a person just before you walk on stage or you're leaning out to skydive or you're signing on the bottom line for three years in the army. You have that moment and part of my brain knows that by clicking the mouse, I'm stepping into somewhere. No turning back. The fraught leap. Salto mortale. And it's, it's a moment that's been ripped from every cheesy, don't go in the basement thriller alone in this darkness, cashing a, a flashlight beam side to side, knowing it would catch a target, a smirking face or a splattered knife. And to know all this, to understand what it was and what the result of my negative took a microsecond going through my head. So I sat on my mouse on Mrs. Whitehair and do the click and the next page flashes up and there's a video screen and a an right arrow play button and titles announcing an old TV show and the date and the names of the celebrity participants. There's this video company that's still around now and they released their inventory of decades of old shows into these cable TV channels that you, you tune in now to watch the old quiz shows and the old this and the old that. Because everything video these days is cross-pollinated into YouTube. And my thinking is just plunging forward. I'm racing. My brain is just flying. Why would this have popped up unless it's some mistaken coding? But this is going to be what it looks like. It couldn't be, but no sense in saying that it's, it has to be something. It's here. It's arrived. This thing and I kind of tensed up like you're awaiting a deep injection into your bicep. And I click on the gray arrow on the screen. And an old two-inch videotape rolls and the counter on the YouTube box is showing 30 minutes to play. And the presentation was familiar. It was a, a page from a chapter of childhood, a television quiz show with contestants and celebrities. There's a diplomat from Sierra Leone and two others pretending to be him. And then the host holds up a small package and reads commercial copy off of a teleprompter. And then the, uh, the bunny lady with the white hair and two pretenders who were all claiming to be uh, queens of a rabbit contest of some sort. And this digital file is ticking along and it's about 20 minutes in. And then the final contestants are in shadow on this raised stage outlined against a whiteboard backdrop. And it's this simple black and white entertainment to most viewers then and now. And uh, the grand drama for a basement audience of one in a town in New Jersey. And in these hazy few seconds, one silhouette among the three intimates a familiarity but with no reference or no memory it's impossible to say for sure i just waited for the orchestra and the faces and the announcer what is your name please 
and the spotlights engage and the old quiz show host Bud Collier narrates a story about a sunken submarine and plans to salvage the wreck of a freighter and the camera is panning the figures chest up. The first man was solidly built, clean shaven, a pretty stiff headlamp lit animal, like a humorless math teacher who would hesitate to give his name in a faculty mixer. The second had a beard, there was a mustache, black rimmed glasses, an ill-fitting jacket. He was easygoing, smiling at the celebrities because he wanted to get some autographs when the show was over. And there's this balding, nasally third guy in the, uh, the, the third seat there, uh, the guy who just completed your forms at the DMV. He's relaxed, but he's kind of examining. His eyes are in motion. He seems well-practiced at waiting to speak at the right moment. Now, the audience is applauding because they're cued by this overhead sign as these three guys then descend to their seats behind this long desk with electric numerical displays that face the camera. This Broadway actress, Margaret Moser, is the first to throw out questions. After guest number one was stumbling, trying to describe some underwater mechanical process, then number two characterized his business as a company of one and friends. Then number three was questioned and he mumbled something about the historical purposes of exploring a wartime submarine. And there's a ding, this chime that the producer off stage is applying to keep the show moving. There's Johnny Carson before the Tonight Show, back when he was a game show host himself in New York. And he's got this ridiculous leopard print vest on. And he throws in a quip about his intention not to vote that it's number two because the guy looks too much like a Nazi submarine commander. And then he had questions for number one and number three about some technicalities about diving and salvage. Then the long-term uh, socialite and Broadway actress Kitty Carlisle began with number two with some quick diving mass. And then she briskly moved over to the others. She was really fascinated with this topic about deep diving salvage. And then the comic actor Tom Poston got in a couple of lines. He asked number two about agreeing with number three's testimony on cargo still being valuable after 20 years at the bottom of the sea. And number two barely got in a nod when the final timer went off and that was the end of the interrogation. Now, I just didn't know. I didn't know who to finger, who to be saddened or elated by, who to be amazed by, which of the three to adopt my gear was still in neutral and the celebrities are bantering as they mark these 12 inch ballot cards one or two or three they're befuddled as to which of the three men among them was telling the truth and the other two being imposters and they took their time recording the votes and they're awaiting some spark of revelation and Poston just waved his hands and what the heck I'll go for so Bud Collier polls the panel and Poston selected number three, based on imagining this guy's voice through a diver's headset. Uh, Margot Moser voted for number two, but still doubted if a man with a beard could fit into a helmet. Carson went for number three, based on suspicious answers that came from number one. And then the last vote went to number one. Carlisle was declaring that he was the only contestant who looked healthy enough to be a deep sea diver. Some of me knew who it was, the rest, less so, maybe not at all. Even at this point, it was 
still a, a toss-up among these three grainy black and white guys. That's how far away Burton had been from me, even with the photos that I'd found in these old newspaper reproductions. I, I, I just didn't have it. And then at his podium, uh, Collier makes his catchphrase call for the sole truth-teller to confess. Will the real underwater salvage expert please stand up? Now, what happens in this old game show, there's this blip of suspense and one man shuffles in his chair and another begins to rise and then he declines. And then finally, there's a commitment. And number two stands to audience applause. And the panelists are turning to each other wide mouth. Hey, how about that? It's number two. And as on another day, when I sat on a bed with a photograph under a paper clip, I could uh, only react in a modest way. So, uh, it's you. I'm alone at this table in a little basement cubbyhole of a moderate existence in a lifetime of imposed indifference and defensive avoidance. And now it's all relinquished and not completely willfully. The missing is found. The unknown is now embodied to be stared at and absorbed in this six by four inch live action souvenir from an album in history's closet. And as this clip played through seven and a half minutes, I absorbed the moments of introduction, the astonishment, quiet exclamation. I'm watching a face, a body, movements, uh, all of a, a sculpture, a lost antiquity brought back to the surface, reclaimed from darkness. And then as I ran the segment a second time with a more dispassionate examination of number two, I'm stabbing the pause button on and off to catch a frozen frame without distortion, a clean shot to study, thus to finally admit I was being studious. It it wasn't really an intense biopsy as if through a magnifier to catalog the strands of hair. Neither was it a languid removed viewing like you take with watching a documentary about wildebeest migration. It was something in the middle, but it was a totally new room, a togetherness with a person I could not articulate and to some degree didn't want to be a part of. Now that he'd arrived, it was like a very long handshake, a, a connection thrust upon me as if somebody had burst into my little remote underground safe room with the intent on selling me insurance. It was a grip that wouldn't let go, thus limited about what could be spoken between us, confined to the pleasantries because serious talk must wait for the grip to break. I found a slice of notepaper to arrange up against the monitor to cover half of a face or parts of this paused portrait, looking for familiar features of a jawbone, the eye sockets, the corner of the mouth. And I studied Burton with one part of the intellect while another I was experiencing it. The quiet, no crap of it all watching this frozen face for an interminable moment, reflecting how my own features reflected now more my father than my mother, which I sort of recognized ever since I started shaving. 
And then I prodded the play indicator back to the end of the white haired ladies segment and let the whole piece run through again. It's like King Rupert of Ruritania studying the commoner to be enlisted as the body double. Seeing aspects of myself reflected in this man's expression and in this move or that, the way he kind of clumped down the stairs to go to the seats, some stroking of the chin, the confident smiley relating to the famous people in the TV studio he was trying to impress. I didn't know what I should be feeling. If, uh, as had always been the case, there was no emotion to feel, at least emotion that I would admit or claim, or if I was detecting my conscious avoidance, hiding behind that damn academic attitude, just the forensics, it was stupefying. But what are the odds of such a thing poking out of the mile-high haystack of the web, finding this clip among all the mechanisms, the caverns of microfiche, the possible pop-ups or no-shows on any given page of detritus in accordance with the twinkling mysteries of Google rhythms? It was if I'd taken a random flight to a distant city, selected by a dart, tossed out a wall map, and got in there and flipped a coin to choose a restaurant and walked in to notice across the room, some guy I'd never met, and maybe he could have been my brother. Now, one might think, at this point, I'd have Burton move in with me. Copy the file of the old TV show to my phone for regular replay screenshot him to the refrigerator bulletin board. But I'd spent too many years staying quiet. I called my wife downstairs and shared Burton on TV with her, and she nearly had a urological accident. Yet she refrained from immediate shouting. She respected my need for control, my declared non-sharing. I wasn't going to share this with the kids. I wasn't going to share it with anybody. It was, you know, the old remove. After this accidental meeting, this is in October, it would be the December holidays before I even went back to the bookmarked YouTube page. Uh, I guess awaiting the courage or the calm, the necessarily screwing up of the nerves to handle it as one needs to muster when one rises from the waiting room chair to go in for a root canal. I sure didn't want to do it again when I was tired, when I was emotional, when I was wary. I had to pick my moment to confront Burton again. And when I did, the feelings were no clearer, no remarkable crystallization. In the new year, I didn't jump to many viewings. There were months between sittings. I held a caution of peeling back too many layers, looking at too many pores. And when I did look, I would apply the paper against the monitor to cover the image and isolate the facial identifiers, study the smile lines, the shucksiness of the voice. Yet this increasing familiarity did not manifest any evolving closeness to the man who's converting down there at the end of the telescope. Was this diver watching me back? Would he ponder who might see him? Burton's family in 1961, whatever that was, they'd be on alert the night of the broadcast, you know, back then. Maybe some pals at a bar, but anybody else watching? What likely mattered to Bert about being on TV was to impress some backer for this new salvage job that he'd gone on TV to talk about. 
Maybe one of the production assistants would whisper in Burton's ear just before the countdown that a nurse in New Jersey is going to see him on camera. What was going to be the risk in the medium of TV back then, the the pre-most wanted whatever America for some game show contestant to be discovered by a bounced check creditor or a small town inspector out there or a fist-shaking parent of a debased daughter. There was this equation in play for Burton. It was the spotlight plus notoriety plus cash. While for someone else in an American living room, a room of shock plus scream plus WTF. Back in 61, nobody imagined that they would witness this in another time and place beyond that single October night. There was no minutes later viral anything. So Burton calculated the percentages and ignored or willed himself past any potential threat and climbed up to the darkened scaffold with two men pretending to be him. And the payoff for flummoxing the panel would be 750 bucks to split with the other two guys, an army sergeant and a dude ranch operator from North Jersey who had pretended to be deep sea divers. And at the end of the whole thing, number one, number two, number three, they all went backstage to sign a form to get their checks mailed out and receive a complimentary carton of Salem cigarettes. And on the set, Kitty Carlisle was having the last word before the cut to commercial. And she said, I know why number two didn't look healthy. He was suffering from rapture of the deep. And so here I am at 64. I've been a writer my whole life. I started out in the high school newspaper. I moved to Philadelphia when I was 20, and I was in what were called the underground newspapers, and I was a rock critic and a cultural critic and hanging around with Jerry Garcia and Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins and all these people and parties and David Bowie and just all this stuff going on for a couple of years. And that evolved into being a communications person, a PR person for an avant-garde theater. And I turned myself into a theatrical producer and was putting on hundreds of shows and putting on jazz on uh, Philadelphia NPR station on Saturday nights, live concerts and theater and this and that, and playing in this all-star band and ending up in a whole career of nonprofit public relations, telling stories of deserving people or entities that were seeking public education. Come see the concert. Come make a donation to the Senior Citizen Center. Come give big scientific money to Drexel University. Come pay attention to this. Come pay attention to that. All these little stories about other people, other places, other things. I ended up at an alcohol and drug rehab center for seven years as their communications person, telling the story of strength, hope, and recovery, and trying to bring people in with their families before they die from addiction and getting things turned around for them. It was a very fruitful seven years. It was worth getting out of bed in the morning, but I was actually doing something worthwhile for somebody. Always been a writer, little snippets, small things, nonfiction, other people's stories, and 
And now there's this story sitting in front of me that I am compelled to talk about. And I start talking about it. It was going to be a nice little uh, six or seven page short story, maybe 12 pages. Take me about a month to write up this experience, sell it to Esquire or something like that. And three months later, it was 25 pages. And six months later, it was 60 pages. And there was more out there and more out there and more out there. And I found my grandfather who, like me, had been a reporter back in the 1920s. And then he turned himself into a public relations guy. He worked for industry. But then things didn't work out for him, and he ended up fleeing Mexico in 1947 or 48 or so because there was a scandal with the Mexican president and his election there, and this grandfather, Burton's father, was involved, and he escaped across the Texas line with nothing, and he's back in some small Texas town, so he has to go back to being a reporter, and he becomes a newspaper editor, and then he becomes an editorial guy, program guy at a small Texas radio station down outside of Corpus Christi in a town called Alice, where there's a political boss who runs things, and he's in cahoots with a young senator named Whoop. Lyndon Baines Johnson, who's going into his first election. And this guy's got votes in his pocket and money in his pocket and controls these two counties in Southeast Texas. He's called the Duke of Duval. And my grandfather is really ticked off at the corruption and the mess. And that's this whole city is under the thumb of this guy. And the sheriff's deputies are beating up people on street corners. And my father is doing editorials and yakking about it and yakking about it. And he finally points the finger at one of these sheriffs out there and says, well, sorry, uh, I got to tell you, but we have evidence this guy runs a whorehouse. So the next day, the sheriff goes out and finds my grandfather in the middle of the street in this dusty Texas town called Dallas and shoots him down like a dog like an unwanted piece of cattle. Well, that was the end of him. And I hope as a reporter turned PR person, my future is a little cheerier than my grandfather's. And I'm living and I'm writing and I'm living and I'm writing. And I'm finding my father married seven times, uh, including twice to one woman. And with that woman, he had six kids. And with his first wife, he had an older brother of mine who turned out to be a cop living in Ohio. And there was another kid that he had down in Louisiana with wife number five, but there was this huge fire that killed the wife when the mansion burned down. And the kid grew up uh, kind of troubled and, and this and that, and he ended up dying in the mid nineties of AIDS. So, certainly never got to talk to him. So all these people are out there and all this stuff is out there and I'm living and writing and writing and living and now I've got this darn book I'm publishing and uh, and I'm still writing and I'm, I'm on like the 50th draft to make it better and better and do this and do that. And I've stopped researching. I've stopped looking. I've stopped anything. I mean, it's all in this big lumpy pile in front of me here. And, uh, well, you know, Telemachus put it together. There, is a, you know, there are the facts and there are the mysteries. Now I've got 255 pages of, of facts. But when I sit here in my basement all by myself in my office, well, it's nice to have all these 
pages of facts over here, but I still have all these mysteries. Some siblings I haven't spoken to, haven't met yet. One in another state I'm, I've been trying to get to, and the pandemic got in the way, but I, I want to get to her before uh, her health gets in the way forever, if you know what I'm saying. So all these mysteries are still there. And uh, well, uh, Paul McCartney had his lyrics about what happens when you're 64. And uh, my lyrics seem to be totally different from that. And now uh, we'll see what happens tomorrow. When, let me ask you something real quick, uh, jump in here. Um, when do you expect this book to be released and what is the title of it? Catchy title. It's called Please Stand Up. Which, you know, obvious references. Got the TV show. Got the guy who's been hiding my whole life. Wondering which of the three or four Burtons I found out there who could have been him, the one finally turned into. And uh, it was originally designed to come out in December of 2021, but some things got in the way, and now it should be available later February, March, somewhere in there, uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and all of the usual fine retailers out there. Well, you you kind of narrated the book now. It's pretty natural in the way of not quite conversationally, but more narration i mean you you just spent a good 47 minutes reading from your book and i I was just wondering if you will be planning on uh recording an audible account of your book as well because i think your voice you know is very pleasant to listen to and the way you told your story was was quite was quite you know it was just enjoyable uh but and i think that something that you should really think about is is you know narration of your own book you gave me a nice opportunity to kind of talk it out because i have hardly ever done that there's hardly been any opportunity to sit with some friends at the dinner table and and while we finish up our coffee and dessert hey you got two and a half hours let me tell you a story it certainly hasn't come up and you've been gracious to give me this kind of open time to just kind of let it go and I have some pages here and a lot of it's in my head I'm sort of going back and forth between my pages and, and what's you know, my experience in my in my head rather than just a, a straight read because I I want to talk with people I don't want to talk at them but in terms of your suggestion um, down the road down the road it would be nice to have an audio and whether I do it or uh, uh, somebody else. There's a fellow in California who's a uh, a well-known comedic actor who read the book and gave me a nice blurb about it from my website and sort of entertained doing the audio book of it. But that's a real down the road kind of a thing. Although I'll be you know, perfectly honest with you, my my long game is not to have the book be popular or do well. That would be a very nice thing. I'm not doing all of this writing, et cetera, just to sort of do the book and 
14 relatives have it and a couple of friends and there's 200 copies in my garage and that's kind of the end of it. Uh, my long game is to do well because I think what I've been through and what I've been able to do with it um, can get me someplace. And hey, I'll, I'm throwing up my hands so you can see my palms and a little innocent, uh, well, long game. If somebody at Amazon or Netflix wants to do something with it, have your people call my people. Yeah, it would it would make a great documentary, I think, um, as well. well I'm, th I'm thinking Mark Ruffalo in the lead as my father, but that's just idle speculation. <laughs> um, now, do you know that your father has passed away or not? Is that something you found out yet? In the mid '90s, in the mid '90s, down in Texas with and, his and you don't have any. Wife. He didn't have any other children with your mother, just you. Uh, yes, he was in and out of town in five months. Okay, so that did that didn't work out. Yeah, did did your mother have other children? I mean, are you an only child now? It's just me. She raised me in her grandparents' house. They very graciously gave her the time and the space and the everything to work that out until they got too old and I got too big and boisterous and teenagey and my mother and I moved out into a separate apartment that I described uh, for you earlier. So luckily there was a lot there that gave me a nice middle class uh, white American life in the 1950s with the Cub Scouts and the 4th of July parades and the vacations and the the old green Dodge to Florida and, and the right kind of shoes and, and all that kind of stuff. It was a very nice, reasonable childhood until my grandfather and I were too much at odds because like I said, he was getting old. I was getting old. It was time to, to make a change, but it was just me. Yeah. Yeah. But, but now you know that you have what seven half brothers and sisters out there that that are that you've yet to meet or or have you met any of them yet i was able to meet uh my older brother and develop a relationship uh in which we both shared that uh, he and i were the most alike of the entire crowd uh he passed away uh, a little more than a year ago uh, a second brother passed away from uh, what I'll gently call too much life in Florida last February. Um, one other sibling I've never spoken to or met. Uh, two others, uh, some of the others I, I have had you know, telephone talks and I've, I've met two of my sisters. Uh, so there's been a range of contacts between people and there's been back and forth thing of texting and emailing and the occasional phone call and things like that so uh, there are some sharing relationships out there now so you, you found out about them in, during your research on your dad is that right i mean right you, you didn't do a dna dna thing where you i never did that kind of a thing and had this list come back yeah okay. um it all came to me uh, through research uh back in those old Newsweek magazines that I, I made reference to from 1961 at one point it says uh, Burton who's this heating engineer from Bridgeport Connecticut and father of five the, okay well there's there's a fact in the back of my head somewhere 
And uh, as I got to know him, through everything I found out about his sociopathic self, um, the question became, oh, not the matter of, oh, he's got five other kids, but is really, he's got five more? Or is it, really, that's all you found was five? And there's a little fantasy, Michael, in the back of my head, that the book comes out and it does well and it gets reviewed and, and people are interested. And one day there's the equivalent of the knock, on the knock on the door, I guess these days is email or what have you. And uh, there's somebody else out there from some wild weekend or from some four month period that nobody knows about or some adventure in some town where, where Burton, the, the merchant marine guy, uh, the, the travel around guy, the do anything, bounce from here to there, escape one step in front of the law guy had some other relationship with somebody else and all of a sudden uh, here comes the email ding dong you don't so, know me but yeah I read your book and here i am <laughs> is uh are, are your brothers and sisters are they all different mothers was he with anybody six long? of them came from one okay so he did ha have right. a significant uh marriage to somebody for a while yes and uh two brothers the oldest one who passed away last year and the youngest one who died in the 90s in his 20s uh, from separate people uh, my mother was wife number three surrounded by a woman who is wife number two and wife number four and uh, that's where the other six came from 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 that remarkable lady the odd thing about the the whole the whole adventure and I have fun with this in, in finding out things and in recording it uh, how many coincidences there were in things uh, my brother uh, my father Burton had a sister Marilyn and she ended up at about the same time that I was still living with my mother in this suburban New Jersey town and taking the commuter train over to Philly to go to work at my underground newspaper when I was first starting to work over there. My Aunt Marilyn was born two years after my dad. Could have conceivably been on the same train because she was living four towns away from where I was living, raising her two kids. And she was in nursing studies in Philadelphia, turning her life around when she was in her 40s or 50s, whatever it was, in nursing studies in Philly. And my mother, as I said, was also a nurse. So my aunt is turning into a nurse. She's living four towns away from me in South Jersey. And her son is running around. He's 20. He's checking out the bars along Route 73 outside of, you know, in in South Jersey, going into a particular bar, which now I pass by every day of the week as I leave my neighborhood. And little drop-in coincidences like that have been all over the place. One of my brothers lived in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, which is a 50-minute drive from my house, and he lived there for 20 years. I could have run into him at a mall outside of Philly and you know we could have just thrown you know, angry annoyances at each other about, over who took the parking space who knows i was turns out 
right next door to people and had no idea. That's fascinating. So you've, you've all, you've, you're about ready for this book to be published. Is there another chapter that you want to go into that, because uh, you seem like you have a lot of material, even even building it now. Is, is there more books in the works? Are you thinking along those lines or short no, stories? I'm not, think, I'm not thinking of another book because um, I'm not a writer of books. I'm not propelled each day by, oh, that would make a great short story. Being that sort of long, long line writer is not the guy I've always been. I've always been the short form nonfiction guy taking other people's factual stories and promoting them forward, either working in the arts, working in education, working in social services and things of that nature. Uh, even when I was an old rock and roll critic back then, I wasn't playing in the band making the records. I was talking about the guys playing in the band and making the records. Uh, all the things that I've done in my life have been, in that regard anyway, have been about taking other people and what they've accomplished and yakking it out to the world. I worked in radio for a long time. And it was, hey, it's two o'clock in Philadelphia and here's this program on this station. Listen to this. And setting off the new tune that nobody has heard before. So that, that's been my life as a writer in the papers and in magazines and in the nonprofit world, talking about other people, which I am perfectly fine with because that's what I've been good at. So when this thing dumped into my lap and turned from a small thing to a larger thing, to a bigger thing, to an elephant in the room, I just had to tackle it with as much skill as I could muster. But that's pretty much where it ends. Uh, I have no feelings whatsoever about, well, once I get that done and I get it published and something happens, my next book, it's not in my DNA. So I don't know what's going to happen writing wise after that, unless, as I said to you before, long form, you know, the long game I want to play here. If somebody wants to sit down with me for six months and bat out a screenplay, well, okay. But that's about it. It's this strange UFO that landed in my backyard and I've had my adventure with it. And at some point down the road, except for marketing, selling, the UFO is going to, you know, they're going to get back on board and it's going to take off and that'll be the end of it. Okay. Uh, final question. You never knew your father until you were 64 or well, until you were 14, your mother gave you the envelope, but, but you really did the research later on. Was there any animosity built up around the fact that you didn't have a father growing up? as far as you know him being there for you and coaching you in little league and you know what what all this all the things that you would kind of imagine having a father would be like is that something that you have now kind of come to terms with with him or is that something you're still working through well i always had emotional walls up the way i approached it was i was not going to dignify him with my curiosity and other people 
you'd go out on dates with women and by the you know the first date or the second date and you'd be trading family stories and all that oh well you never knew your father how come are you going to look him up are you going to do it well i'm i'm not really that interested what are you crazy it's your father there have been moments i'm sure when i'd be in a therapist's office somewhere and remark upon my emotional walls where you know, if I don't feel anything, I don't have to get hurt by anything. I'm, I'm okay with it. I had my life. I had a nice childhood. Everything's fine. He kind of went away. I don't miss him. He was never there. That's fine. I don't have a father. That's fine. And the therapist is over there where there are, you know, steam coming out of their ears. Well, I think we should take a look at that. So in grasping the enormity of it all, and also in grasping that he was a father, not a good father, but a father to eight other people. And I certainly don't have the time, you know, there are 20 pages in the book about what kind of a father he was to these other individuals that I have from my research, from their testimony, and all the stories that have been shared. Having plowed through all of that, you know, for a long time, the idea of the father of other people in the family was kind of like going to the National Zoo. And you go to the big primates exhibit, and there's a thick glass wall, and on the other side of the wall are these wonderful creatures who are so human, not just through DNA, but the way the older one is, is dealing with a little one who's jumping all over him and the guy just, you know, the, the, the old master gorilla just wants to read the evening paper and have a cigar and this kid is all over him and throws him across the room and you can sit by the glass and you're right there next to them and you can just feel this this thing between you this connection between you uh, across time across some kind of undefinable distance between us and other creatures in the world that we share. And other family to me, my father to me, was always on the other side of this window that I could watch and observe, uh, not literally for the longest time until very recently. But I didn't have any, I didn't walk around with any hole in me. I didn't walk around with any sadness. It was just as when I was growing up, when I was little with my mother, and she would just explain, well, not everybody has everything. There's an average, there's a typical. You have what you have, and it's it's perfectly okay. And that's how I was raised. And that was okay with me. And yeah, I could sit on some therapist's couch for a couple of years, and we could drill, and all sorts of stuff would come out. But I didn't feel much for my most of my life, Michael, except that self-imposed isolation that kept me from being damaged by anything. And as I got to learn more and, and, and get into more things, I became very protective of my siblings and what this guy in his, on his bad days did to them. And I really feel for the young one who, who died when he was in his twenties and what he went through, never met the guy. All I have are these pictures. Uh, there's this phrase that I've not gotten used to ever, Michael, which is, as I say in my book, I discuss him uh, in this one paragraph. He's like looking at a, a photograph 
of some kid before the Civil War, some farm kid, and he's all dressed up in his blue uniform. And he looks all snappy, and he's you know, looking out at the future. And you know he's going to go off somewhere, and he's going to get you know just blown to pieces at Chancellorsville or something like that. And I, I found myself caring for this guy, for my brother, Adam, I, I'm caring for him, the hurt and the sadness and the unfairness of the things that he had to go through. And you don't even have to meet a half sibling or, or some other family who's intimately connected to you like that through your father's blood. You don't even have to meet them to carry their pain and their deprivation and, and their little anguishes of their life. I think all of the siblings, all of the children of, of Bert the diver carry this for one another. And it was just, you know, it wasn't imposed on you, but it was presented to you on a tray under a cloth and you accept it. You don't have to meet, you don't have to have this great relationship on the phone or, or in person at all, but you just have it. And since my revelations here, I've carried that forward for my siblings and their relations. And maybe they carry me in the same way. I'm not entirely sure. No anger there. Like I say, it's, it's like watching them on a TV show and you know, you're attached, you know, it's, Hey, look at that. But it's a gray image. a shout out to Ben, the editor of the show. Ben also has a podcast called Two Marks and a Spark. You can find it wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Check it out. You won't be sorry.